Hi, this is Gary Rogowski. Welcome to Splinters, the podcast for the Northwest Woodworking Studio, a school for woodworkers here in Portland, Oregon. We've been running things since uh, 97, running things. We've been running classes. We haven't been running anything. We've been running classes. And uh, it's been great. It's been a good run. And uh, I appreciate the support. Anyway, today, today's topic, bandsaws. The most versatile tool in the, in the shop. The most important tool to have. Power tool, in my opinion, for a furniture maker. A cabinet maker needs a table saw, but a furniture maker needs a good bandsaw. <clears throat> I remember when I met Art Carpenter, Espinay, uh, in uh, Bolinas, California. He showed me his, his showroom, and he had all these quarter-scale models of pieces that he would build. And he said, yeah, I can't draw. I can, I can do better on the bandsaw. I can do things better. I can draw on the bandsaw better than I can draw with a pencil, is what he said. So it, it, it's a very versatile tool. I was looking years ago for a lathe. I decided, oh, I'm going to learn how to turn, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become a turner. And I couldn't find a lathe, but I found this old bandsaw. And this bandsaw was, I don't know, it was old when I bought it. It turns out it was a, uh, a game-changer for me. It was an old Yates American 16-inch shop or school saw. But still weighs weighed a ton, weighs, still weighs a ton, and uh, is the um, center of all the work that I do. It changed the way I, I did things in the shop because I could mill up lumber, rough mill lumber. I could resaw logs, not huge logs. It was not a huge motor on it, but uh, there was a great fence on it so I could do joinery. I could cut curves and circles. There are just so many jobs I can do with this tool. At this count, I only have... Oh, one, two, three, four, five. Running. One, two. <laughs> I have a lot of bandsaws. And they're great. They are great. So let's chat just a little bit about bandsaws and what you need to, to think about and consider. Uh, I do this in, in anticipation of a lecture I'm giving on February 7th. So uh, if you're in town, uh, come on by the studio and uh, watch me set up a bandsaw. It's a tool that requires some finessing a little bit of finessing but here let's 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 start back at the beginning number one i think you should go out and find an old bandsaw because the new bandsaws are all made of sheet metal there you have it it's not to say you can't get great cuts out of them but what i found with with my uh old laguna which i've had now for 20 years an lt16 is that they're too short they're too low to the ground and they're not weighted down. So I made a base about eight inches tall so that the table is up. I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not at the shop. So I'm going to say it's 40 inches off the floor, something like that. By putting that base on there, I raised it up. I bolted the bandsaw to that base, sandbagged that base inside. So I had a, something to dampen the vibration. That's why there's so much cast iron in these bandsaws, to dampen vibration. I have a big old 36-inch Yates American Snowflake that I use just for resawing. That is its only job. I don't turn it on every day. It takes 14 seconds to get up to speed. One of my students now, Adam, finally has learned to recognize when it's up to speed. And he says, you know when it's running, when the floor shakes. That's, <laughs> that's the bandsaw. I got it in. I bought it. You be careful. You be careful out there what you shop for on eBay. Uh, years ago, uh, probably 10, 12 years ago, I was looking on eBay for this kind of bandsaw. A 
because my friend Brian Boggs had two of them or three of them. I forget how many he had. This snowflake Yates American bandsaw. So I found one and I put a bid in at $2,000, not thinking that I had a snowball's chance of getting this snowflake. Anyway, eBay sends me a, a note and they say, your bid of $1,995 did not meet the reserve price. And that's it. That's all they said. Sort of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And I went, huh. So I put in a bid for $2,001.50 and got the bandsaw. Now, it was down in Anaheim, California at, uh, at a shop. I called up, and the guy answers the phone and says, Chop Shop. And I went, oh, goody. But this, you know, this guy did all sorts of stuff, and he found this bandsaw at another auction and bought it cheap. And he was running it uh, on uh, three-phase 440. So I had a friend down in, in uh, Southern California go and check it out for me, uh, make, make sure it ran, make sure it was pretty stable. You take a nickel, set it on the table. If that nickel stays standing, you're golden. Uh, if it falls over, then you've got some vibration issues or maybe a bearing issue. It's hard to say. But I was looking for something that ran and was stable. I bought it uh, for $2,001.50. And then I had to get it up here. And uh, that that turned out to be expensive. But I got it up. This uh, Ukrainian guy shows up and says, hey, got a bandsaw for you. And it's on the back of his flatbed, which is covered up, a covered wagon called and I go outside and the bed of this semi is I don't know five feet off the ground and seven feet above that is the top of this bandsaw and I'm looking at it going how in the hell am I going to get that thing off the truck trucker's not going to help me he doesn't lift he drives that's his job he drives so how am I going to get this this thing off well fortunately there was a machine shop not too far away and I went over there, and they worked on, on specialty autos and stuff. So they had a forklift. Graciously, they, they agreed to come over, and they had a two-ton forklift. And they came over and lifted this bandsaw up, which was on skids, on some 4x4 four four and 2x4 skids. And it wouldn't fit in my roll-up door. It wouldn't fit in the door. So, And we were close. And so it was rainy outside, you know, and I just said, push. Just get it inside. I didn't care if it broke anything. So I got it inside. And uh, I had prepared for it. I knew that it was coming. So I had three pieces of one-inch pipe, each about two foot long. And we set the bandsaw on this pipe. And then my assistant and I, Zach, rolled the bandsaw around. What a, what a brilliant invention, the wheel. Brilliant. Uh, 2,900 pounds, 2,800 pounds. I, I forget exactly what the bandsaw weighs. But it's, you know a ton and a half, and we were able to move it around to the spot where I wanted to put it, just by rolling it and moving the pipes in front of the bandsaw and under the skid. And then it took three of us to get it off the skid. You know, we unbolted it and stuff, but that thing was, that thing was heavy, hard to move, really hard to move. So don't try and lift one, one of those by yourself. But anyway, got it in place, and then I tuned it up, uh, did the work on it. You know that bandsaw wheels adjust north and south. The, up one, the upper one adjusts uh, north and south. On the Yates, the upper one also adjusts east and west. So I, I found that there were tapped holes in the wheel, and I ran bolts in there and plumb bobs down, and I got rid of the table and lined it up to the 
bottom wheel and got this thing running. And it was great. It was great until I put a uh, one-inch carbide tip blade on it. About 234 inches, I think, is the circumference of, this, of the, the run, the blade length. And so um, it's bendy, but this blade cuts like a hot knife through butter. It cuts so great. Anyway, I got it wired. I got it running. I put a one-inch blade on there, and the next thing I know, I'm blowing heaters because I'm drawing too much, too much juice. So I had to go back in and rewire some stuff. Anyways, I get it up to speed, and I notice that the the uh, the blade is ticking against the aluminum blade guard. Uh, one of the reasons I got this machine cheap was that the top of it had been busted, probably dropped, and the aluminum casting, the the uh, wheel cover. Uh, the hinged door had been welded back together, so everyone was nervous about it. But ran great, no problem with a break anywhere else, just on the upper part. But the blade, this one-inch blade, was running into the aluminum guard on the on the left side of the machine, and I thought, well, geez, I got to adjust this, and so I adjusted it east and west, which I couldn't do, and I started to get blade drift. That is the point of this long explication, this long story, because now I understand what causes blade drift. It's fascinating. You know, I bought this old 16-inch Yates American, and it, I never had blade drift. It was never an issue. I would dial it in. I'd have a sharp blade, move the fence in, not adjust for blade drift, which is the angle at which your blade wants to cut wood. But I would just move the fence over and make cuts, and I started to hear about blade drift in the magazines and stuff. And I thought, oh, geez, I don't have blade drift. What's wrong with me? I don't have any blade drift. Not a problem with that old Yates. And it wasn't a problem with the big Yates until I put on that one-inch blade and I had to adjust it east and west. So what you hear about blade drift is, oh, it's not uh, sitting properly on the wheel. The teeth should be sitting off the wheel. Nonsense. The, the geometry of the wheel wants the blade to ride to the top of the crown of the of the uh, tire. So that doesn't make any sense. And people say it needs to be coplanar with the upper wheel and the lower wheel. Nonsense, again, because the, that upper wheel has to be adjusted so it tracks properly on the tire. That automatically kicks it out of planar with the uh, bottom wheel. Uh, there are some other other theories. But as, as soon as I saw what my bandsaw was doing and causing that blade drift, because I had adjusted it east and west, that's the obvious answer for me. I adjust my fence accordingly to the to the drift. It's not very much, but it does make a difference, particularly on a big wide blade, like a half inch or a three-quarter inch wide blade. It makes a difference because if the cut is at an angle in the kerf, then the back of the blade is going to be touching and rubbing on one side or another and causing some heating, maybe some friction and burning. Uh, so it's easy to adjust the fence so that it's tracking true, the blade is tracking true in the curve. Anyway, that's what I know about blade drift. To back up a little bit on the makeup of this of this machine, we have two wheels, cast iron, you hope, they're cast iron, uh, that are balanced. You can check that. Put a little piece of tape on it or a chalk mark. Remove the blade, remove the belt that fits the lower lower wheel and spin it and spin it from different starting spots each time and make sure that that chalk mark ends up in different spots. If it's always ending up at the bottom, you know you've got a heavy spot. And if you look at your wheels, you'll see that there's either something screwed onto it or holes drilled in the back of it. And those holes are drilled there not for looks, 
they're drilled to balance the wheels out so that they run truer uh, on the bearings, on the shafts. You can find out if your wheels are balanced. And if you need, the easiest thing these days is just to add one of those rare earth magnets or two. Uh, or you can take a little bit of steel off or cast iron off in order to balance it out. The next thing you need to check on are your tires. All bandsaws, or rather all good bandsaws, have crowned tires. And they are crowned either in the rubber or urethane, whatever the tire is made of, or there's a crown in the wheel itself. So I have a 14-inch Powermatic bandsaw, a little guy, and the wheels have a crown in them. And then your tire fits over that crown and automatically bends to that shape. But that crown is there so that the blade, when you're tracking it, runs to the top of the crown. It likes to run to the top. Uh, maybe that's downhill. You'd think it would want to run off, but uh, and it will if, it, the, if that top wheel is tipped too far forward. But you make your adjustment and bring it back, and the blade will run to the top of that crown. And you'll be golden. It will, it will track properly. I tuned my saw's blade tension by ear. I don't pay much attention to the gauges that they, they put on these saws because I don't trust them. But it's a put one hand on one side of the blade and then pluck the other side, and you'll hear a thunk, thunk, thunk. That's too low. And when you get up to a ping, 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 that's, that's pretty high. But, you know, somewhere in that range is what you want. It's so scientific, I know. <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> I know that there are blade tensioning gauges out there you can buy, but, um, you know, just a high ping is what you're after. And then check how it, see how it runs. See if there's any visible shake or wobble in the blade when you're, when you're running it and adjust your, your uh, tensioning on the run. You know, I've had a blade wobble a little bit and put a little bit more tension on it and have that get pulled out. So check the results. Check the results. Now, there's this nonsense now with some of these new saws that you have to release the tension on your upper upper wheel because you're going to get a flat spot in, in it. And I, and I say, if, if you get a flat spot in your wheels by sitting them for a period of time, you got the wrong machine. I mean, the rubber is pretty non-compressible, and you would hope that your wheel is as well. So... I don't worry about detensioning my saw at the end of a, of a day's work. I need to go back to work the next day. So I don't worry about that. I do make sure it's tracking properly. And all of this is done without any blade guides behind it, thrust bearings or side bearings. Everything's pulled away so I know it's tracking properly. I spin it by hand and check to see that it's tracking properly under the, the right tension. That's all good. Then I bring everything in. Then I bring the top rear thrust bearing, the bottom rear thrust bearing. Make sure that bottom one is never in front of the top one. That'll cause problems with uh, blade drift and things not tracking properly. So I like to have the bearing or whatever you're using. I use these ceramic guides on the Laguna, but the, the Yates both have bearings, which make a whole lot, a lot of sense. They don't wear out, number one, and cost 90 bucks to replace, like the ceramic guide. And uh, there's more bearing surface. So instead of a three-quarter inch plug of ceramic, I've got a, I got a bearing on the 36 inch. It's I don't know two inches in diameter, and the little one has got a you know inch and a quarter diameter rear thrust bearing. They last forever. They're sealed so they don't get dust in them. They last forever. But set that top rear thrust bearing so it's just barely touching the blade when you spin it. 
by hand. And then under a load, when you push, push a piece of wood into the blade, it's going to move back into that bearing and start to uh, track on that blade guide. The side guides, I get close to within a few thousandths. I don't worry too much about it. I'm not cutting such tight curves that I'm putting the blade under a lot of stress and, and twisting it. I mean, that's what they're there for. They're not supposed to be touching in, in, in a normal cut. You don't need them in a normal cut. In fact, on my Powermatic, on the 14-inch Powermatic, um, they have these Carter guides on, and Carter guides are someone's idea of a good good idea. Uh, and they're really hard on the Powermatic, really hard to adjust, and there's double ball bearings um, I'm trying to think. They're about, I don't know, five-eighths or three-quarter-inch diameter bearings, and they're doubled up, so you can put a bigger blade on there, which doesn't make sense because the machine doesn't have the power. The manufacturers have double bearings, so there's four bearings on the top and four bearings below the table underneath. Well, the ones underneath were fine because they were rarely spinning, but the ones up top went bad. So I took those off and replaced them with the ones from underneath. Didn't have any bearings underneath never affected the, the way the saw ran. Never affected. You look at these old saws and, and uh, they're so dirt simple. And there's a lot of stuff that uh, manufacturers add to these things to try and make you say, oh yeah, I gotta get a new one because it's, it's got, a, it's got a, you know, a, a little hose to blow the dust off. That's, that's an important, that's an important thing. Farmatic had that too. All I can say is, ay, yeah, yeah, what a dumb idea. What I want is mass Make sure your blade is sharp. Make sure it's tracking properly. Um, that's going to take care of most of your blade drift issues. I don't adjust my fence. I just cut straight with a good sharp blade. The blades I use are made up at a saw shop. And so you don't have to buy a blade that's, you know, wrapped up in, in a box or plastic or whatever. You just figure out the, the, um, the length required for your blade. Call up the shop and say, I want a A, B, or C. You know, I want a quarter-inch wide blade or a three-eighths wide blade or the one I use the most, a half-inch wide blade. I can get three teeth per inch or four teeth per inch or six or ten. And, you know, it goes up. But what I use my bandsaw for is, for the most part, rough cutting. I'm not usually cutting joints. And if I do, I just have to slow down my feed rate in order to get a pretty nice cut. I go with a three-tooth hook pattern. So that's a blade that has an angle forward of about 10 degrees, so it's a more aggressive cut. And that's what I use. I use a half-inch, uh, three-tooth hook pattern for most of my cutting. I can resaw with it. I can rip with it. I can cut joints on it. If I really want to do, you know, tight work, then I can change that out and put a quarter-inch blade on. Or, <laughs> let me brag, walk over to the quarter-inch blade on the 14-inch Powermatic. Ah, blade tension. I'm looking at my notes for class. Plucking for sound is an E on a bass guitar. You know, for side tension, if you push on the blade, you shouldn't see it move more than an eighth of an inch or so. And then you can go just a little bit tighter. And the wider the blade, the more tension is required to, uh, to tighten things up. Watch out in the cut for sort of a shushing cut, an S shape, an S cut. The problem we, we run into with bandsaw cuts is that Say you've got a three-inch tall board. It starts cutting at the top of the board. Where does the sawdust go? It's not getting ejected. The sawdust has to go down with the tooth through the rest of the three inches of cut and then get deposited down at the bottom, hopefully into your dust collector. So that sawdust has to, has to run through the cut 
with the blade. And if you're cutting too fast, you'll have problems with that. I, I talked to an engineer at uh, Lennox. Uh, they make bandsaw blades. I was asking him about making cuts, and he said, what do you want to do? You want to cut fast or you want to cut straight? I said, okay, I got it. <laughs> fast is not really an issue for me. Straight is more of an issue. And so I have to slow down in a cut. I have to slow down uh, so that I, I don't run into problems with the blade belling in the cut or starting to track improperly because the sawdust isn't getting cleared. When that sawdust isn't getting cleared properly, then you'll have problems like that. So I avoid that by slowing down my feed rate. Always have a push stick ready, a, a pencil, a number two pencil at the very least to push things through. The great thing about bandsaws is that you can walk away in the middle of the cut and you've put no one at risk. You never want to do that on the table saw because the force is up out of the table and then at you. The bandsaw is just down and into the table. As long as you're not lifting something off the table or trying to cut something crazy, it's a very safe machine. But make sure you have a push stick for those tight cuts. And it's always nice to have something on the backside so you're not leaning over. You know, it could be a garbage can and a piece of plywood, whatever. Something to help support your cuts. Well, I've gone on too long about these, uh, about these bandsaws. There's tons more to talk about, and I've got this lecture coming up. That date again is February 7th. A couple hours of, of chatting about this stuff and uh, showing you some cuts and a couple of jigs that I use. It is the most versatile machine in the shop. I would be lost without mine. As I told uh, my students when I was back at the old building, the old Barker Furniture Manufacturing Plant, we were up on the second floor and there was there were lights, you know, trouble lights uh, to light your way out if there was a you know, fire alarm, if the alarm went off, told everyone, you go down the hall, you take a left, you go to the the uh, stairs there and just deposit you right outside. You just make your way calmly out there, you'll be just fine. But you're on your own, because I'm dragging my Yates American bandsaw with me. Thanks very much for listening, I appreciate it. Uh, if you want to ask me a question, support me on coffee and uh, drop me a line, I'd be happy to answer your question. I'm uh, looking forward to um, another year of this uh, chatter. It's kind of fun and uh, gives me a chance to talk with some interesting folks and uh, talk about some topics of interest. So thanks for listening. I, I do appreciate it. Check out our website, northwestwoodworking.com. Our mastery program is in session now and will be coming up in the fall again. So um, come by and take a class with me sometime. That's one of the prerequisites. So we get to know each other. Join us. It's great fun, this stuff. This work is good fun. Thanks very much. Adios.